Welcome to Talking Education, the podcast where we discuss ideas, opinions and research about how education at all levels can prepare us for the 21st century. In this episode, we talk to professors Therese Gronart and Wim Geiselars of Maastricht University about their roles as researchers, educators and consultants. Today's guests are Therese Kronert and Wim Geiselars, two professors at the School of Business and Economics of Maastricht University. Together they form an inspiring duo, as educators co-coordinating their course Theories and Models of Learning, as researchers investigating topics like decision-making and expertise development in the workplace, and as consultants translating their theoretical understanding into pragmatic utility. And with that being said, we welcome Wim and Therese. All right, welcome everyone. Uh, today we have the pleasure to, as you've just heard, uh, introduce or welcome two guests. And yeah, they are Therese and Wim. And yeah, we're very happy to to welcome them. Right, Emma? Yeah. Hello, everyone. It's really nice to have you on today with Nicholas and I. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to this episode. So how are you both doing? Maybe first Therese and then Wim, how are you doing today? Doing very well. Looking forward to the podcast and I'm happy I can be here. Thank you, Emma. I'm doing well. I'm enjoying uh, the day, the beauty of the weather and a good day. So I really look forward to this podcast. Nice. Yeah, the weather is indeed, indeed very nice. How's it in, in Utrecht, actually, Emma? Yeah, same. Super pleasant. Finally, spring is coming back again, um, <laughs> yeah, which is exciting. Yeah, it's really it's crazy how the how the mood changes once, uh, yeah. yeah, once it's really going again. Yes. The weather. Um, all right. We have already in the introduction. We have briefly heard who you are, but that is only like a very surfaced description of you. And we would like to hear a little bit who our guests actually are um, in their own words. And I'm not sure what the best way of approaching this is, but maybe chronologically makes a little bit sense because you both have your individual careers and experience, so to say, but at some point they met and merged together, uh, at least to some degree. And so maybe, Wim, uh, could you start by yeah, telling us a little bit what you're doing and what your background is and your interests are? Yes, thank you. So so my background is uh, I have a degree in education sciences, which I received somewhere in the 80s. <clears throat> and then I started working at Maastricht University, first at the medical school, in trying to help the medical school to improve their uh, educational programs and then they gave me a job offer at uh, the business school when they were just uh, starting up all their new programs and they asked me whether I would like to help them out in developing problem-based uh, economics uh, degrees which I did and, and I thought in those days hmm, I will stay here for a couple of years and then I'll go to another place but I always stayed over here because I loved it being here and getting in touch with all those uh, different disciplines. And from one thing came another, uh, when I met people from companies and I, quite soon I realized that the issues they were facing were similar as in education and that maybe I could help them with my background in the learning sciences. So I specialized in change management and uh, started uh, 
wondering what do managers need to become good managers in their work. And one thing came in order, <clears throat> I got in touch with consultancy firms in trying to help them uh, changing uh, companies and giving them advice. And then someday um, when I started, uh, when I developed a, a program on learning and development organizations, I met Therese as a student and I thought, hmm, I should give her a contract. And because uh, she looks very motivated to do research and help us on teaching and she accepted the job offer. So and that's one of the reasons why we started working together for many, many years now. That's the Sounds very great. pleasant version, Maybe. Wim, that you're telling mm. <laughs> of how we met. <laughs> Is there an unpleasant version? <laughs> well, I was... No, no let, first let me tell my version then, and then, then Teresa. <laughs> yeah. So my version was, uh, I, I was working in, uh, we had nine students, or I, I think we had in that year. It was a very small group. And, and I was overly excited and ambitious with my course. And so I was very demanding on my students. And that was a little bit too much of what I was asking. And Therese started to, literature I would say, voicing up. So telling me how I could uh -huh. change my course. <clears throat> and I thought, oops, there is an issue here. And, uh, and I thought, hmm, she must have courage uh, to speak up. So that was for me another reason. Maybe I should give her a job offer afterwards. So that's the pleasant, the unpleasant version. Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> so Therese, from your perspective, what was the pleasant and unpleasant <laughs> version of that story? So um, I came to the master, what that is now called learning and development in organizations with a degree in business economics. And I had done an internship and I had done an extra semester of psychology because I was really interested. And um, this third course that I took was with WIM. And the topic was absolutely fascinating. And I loved all of the content. The challenge was that we were so overworked at the time where we felt very overworked um, that I felt the need to speak up because other students got upset and, and were very, very emotional about it. And I felt, well, someone has to do something. And um, I, I remember being maybe not the most diplomatic <laughs> in the beginning, um, but Wim was open to it and he listened. And that's that was a great confirmation that learning is something that he not, doesn't only talk about, but he means it. And uh, we had some very yeah. creative assignments where we discussed what would assessment look like for a course to be effective and what is the, the differences in intention between what the teacher is looking for and what the students are seeing at that moment in time. And that dialogue was really inspiring and I enjoyed that. So it, uh, it started out as a confrontation, but it evolved into a really nice working relationship. Mm. That's so interesting. That's a that's a really I think that's a, a really great story, also inspirational story for um, students in general. To um, you know, if they are loving the content and would like to co-create uh, on the yeah yeah about the class with the teachers, there is potential for it. There are teachers very much willing to collaborate and and opens up for even further collaborations, right? So 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I like that story a lot. It's a nice one. <laughs> and you have already just in this process covered two very important uh, team learning uh, mechanisms in productive conflict and co-creation, right? That we basically just already heard. And maybe we can use that a little bit as a segue to what you basically after you have found together in, in the different versions of the stories that we just heard. Um, yeah, what we have been focusing on since then in these three paths, so to say, that we that we have heard as, as educators, researchers, and also in your um, consulting roles. I see Wim uh, is making so a yes. signal. So um, I think what we what we share is um, our passion for learning and that we feel learning is a baseline thing that is not just important for students who are working towards a degree, but as a professional, there is not a single profession where you can afford not to learn. And what we see oftentimes also with the business background is that people talk about incentives or they talk about organizational structures or strategy. But if people are not able to do what you want them to do, then you can put all of these things in place. You will not have the outcomes that you're looking for. So if you don't know what you need to know, then what are you going to do? So for us, learning really comes first. And that is something that often gets neglected because people find it maybe a bit fuzzy or they're not really sure what to do. You don't see an immediate return maybe. So that's uh, that's an interesting conversation to have in all fields, um, teaching, research, as well as consultancy. For me, that's the core. Wim, do you have anything to add to that? No, essentially no. Um, so, so I think Teresa summarizes very nicely. But uh, if I would like to add, is it's uh, I've learned that 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 many issues uh, organizations are struggling with are essentially issues of how people um, can adapt to whatever an organization is asking them to do, and. Then it confronts them with uh, a lot of struggles and resistance, and you know <clears throat> they get scared for can I do can I really do this or what are they asking from me and how learning and development can help them in in making the necessary progress. So I'm fascinated by anything which goes with uh, how people develop over time and as an individual. Uh, what makes them change in their life and and then the other things which fascinates me is okay and what happens if you put people together and they need to work together then can i find any um, factors which are decisive in the way they work together so why is it that one meaning feels very well and you get into a flow and you think wow this is just great and others you think Gee, I'm happy if this ends, and you know, and w what is it? And most of the time, it's not that those people are not very, let's say, unsympathetic or unfriendly or so, but it's just that they don't know what to do, or they don't know about what is expected from them, and so forth. And that that brings me to my fascination on why why some people become just excellent people in their work. And others are just doing the work as if it's just another day in their life. Mm -hmm. 
it's, it's very interesting because it I what I heard again basically when you were saying this is what you said also in the beginning um what may, what you realized throughout your your career is that the issues in education are pretty much the issues in uh, business in the business world and so maybe that's uh, also quite a nice uh, segue to talk about the the parallels in uh, PBLs from problem-based learning and in working teams maybe what what where your experience is there as educators coordinating a course on the one hand and maybe could you do could you draw from something in the business world to inform this or the other way around yeah a lot actually so we um problem-based learning is, is a method that is designed to help students become good learners, right? That is the, the essence of what it tries to teach. How do you deal with an unfamiliar situation? What do you do when you are faced with a new problem or complexity? Uh, the same happens in business, of course, as well. Um, the difference is that in education, you are in a setting where you have someone with you who is helping you learn and who is trying to, to ingrain those habits and who is helping you back on track if you need it. And in business, that's not always the case, right? You are assumed to already know. You're the professional, you do it. And um, when companies come to us and they ask us for, for insights on learning and on helping them understand better, the first thing we do is we have a conversation with them in a similar way as we would as teachers with, with students analyzing the problem. Well, what's really happening here? Okay, so what do you already know? What do you not know yet? Okay, do you know if there's anything that depends on that well why would you say so do you have an example for that the the way we 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 question our business partners is very similar to how we teach in pbl and i definitely have gained a lot of confidence from having that practice in teaching to then talk to people who have been in the business for 30 years who are wearing the expensive suit and then there's little me trying to tell them about learning right that can be quite intimidating but if you have a something to hold on to and you know that you're doing it with the best of intentions that's really really helpful and problem-based learning is one way of doing that for me that sounds very nice um yeah how how is the response of because you all you hinted a little bit like uh, at it with like the little you talking to the people in the expensive <laughs> suit how's the the response of yeah when you try to convey the importance of learning so the good thing is that we usually come in because people feel that learning is already important. They just don't know how to do it. So the the hard part of convincing people that learning is important already has happened usually when we come in. Um, the threshold maybe that, that I personally feel I have to get across is that I want people to know that I do know what I'm talking about. And if they meet Wim, who is a full professor, and obviously he's more experienced and they they, they put more trust in him. And um, well, for women, me, it's a very equal partnership, at least that's that's how I feel about it. And we, we know each other's strengths and weaknesses very much. But I feel that I have to show that to an external person just a bit more in the beginning. But in general, I think people love to talk about their work, uh, as do we, right? And um, they are curious a lot of the time about what works and what doesn't work and to get a second perspective on the struggles that they're facing. So this initial conversation so far, I can't remember any conversation that hasn't been interesting or insightful or yeah, just productive for, for both sides. Um, 
the, the resistance usually comes a lot later when you share the results. And sometimes you have bad news and you need to find a good way to, to bring those bad news to make it constructive. But that is at a much later stage usually. And so it's probably then also when you have already built some trust with the um yeah with your clients or however you you call mm -hmm. them i i have a question i'm curious to sometimes i like to um if, if it's okay also in terms of privacy and so on but what could be the kind of bad news you bring um and yeah what exactly could happen in this kind of case in terms of resistance so maybe Wim, i can give an example um mm -hmm. we usually approach our consultancy work with a research mindset. So we don't go in and tell them what the solution is. We say, okay, we can set up a trajectory together with you to explore what's happening. And we take into account mm -hmm. the questions that you are having as a company and that we feel are relevant from a scientific perspective. It has to be this match, it has to go together. And then we go in and for example, one experience we had, uh, we trained 1,200 accountants over three months in groups of 50 and we put them in a simulator. And we essentially put a lot of pressure on them and made them experience a particular team situation. And we were measuring all kinds of things in the background. And from that, we collect data and we try to understand what distinguishes, in this case, high-performing teams from less well-performing teams. And one of the bad news that you have to give sometimes as well, there is a number of teams that perform very clearly below the standard of what your company is expecting. And that is yeah. not necessarily a problem with people who have just entered the profession, who don't have the knowledge yet, uh, who are trying, right? But they, they just can't yet. Sometimes it's people that have been there for a long time and that have a lot of power yeah. and a lot of responsibility and that really, really should know better, but they do not. And you have to, to share that in a way that is non-judgmental that allows the firm to to inquire and be curious okay how does that happen and hmm okay what can yeah. we do now that's the kind of mindset you want people to get into you want them to learn from what you're sharing um and we have some tips and tricks that that i've learned from wim how to do that um one way is uh, we present a, a fun fact as a side issue just minor yeah. thing but it's really really an important message but we don't present it as such um I also learned that we don't, it's best to use non-evaluative language. So you don't say this is really bad. Or if I was you, I would be really worried right now. Things like that. You just say, look, this is what we measured. 50% scored like that. 50% scored like this. If we combine it with that data, this is the picture we get. And then you just let it sink in a little bit. And then you wait for the questions to pop up. But you don't evaluate for them. That's one of the, the main things. And you do the same with teaching, mm. right? You never tell a student, wow, that was bad. You say, look, this is what I see. What do you, what do you need to know? And this, we do the same thing with the practitioners too. That clarifies it a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I, I assume that with the simulator, we, you refer to the flight simulator. Um, which no, you it's a similar know? one. It's, it's, a, a, different it's a different one. setting, but uh, we still have people who are dependent on each other who have to work together to solve a problem. In this case, we also have different hierarchical ranks, which is always fun. And um, okay. they have to come to a shared team judgment under time pressure. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. But maybe never, nevertheless, um, the flight simulator, because I, I have seen it <laughs> uh, in use in 
in the in the tutorial in the education context and uh, i also had the opportunity or pleasure to have it observed in a consultancy um, context so to say and i i'm not sure but as wim is always the person bringing the gear i have uh, a suspicion that maybe he came up with the idea with introducing it into into the teaching uh, and i would be really interested wim of hearing uh, yeah how you came about it and why particularly um a flight simulator and what it adds and, and what it is actually also because i i don't know exactly what you're talking yeah. about now yeah so 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 the story is uh that that um, I was one of the first who bought a personal computer at the university. So in those days, personal community computers were, they had very low um, memory capacity and that kind of stuff. And as a gimmick, they would sell you flight simulator to test whether the computer was doing everything it was supposed to do. And, uh, and so I started to uh, learn taking those lessons and I thought, hmm, this is fun. And from one thing came another, you got all the updates after updates. And at some moment, um, when I started teaching the core theories and models of learning, I thought, hmm, I can talk for days about how people acquire expertise in something, but maybe they should experience it. And is there a way to do so? And so I went with my flight simulator stuff to my students. And I give them a short introduction on how to fly an airplane. And uh, I, they, they, they were flying, they were, they were airborne. And, and then I started to work on designing a training and so forth for them. And uh, at the same moment, I had a PhD researcher who was looking for a work, a test environment where you put people together and where they are completely dependent on each other. So we bought a more advanced flight simulator system where there's a joystick and there is a separate power handle. And what you do is uh, one person is only using the joystick for making the turns and the descents and the climbs and the other has the power literally to use the power bar. So it's like driving a car and then someone sitting next to you who decides whether or not to brake. I can tell you that's quite scary. <laughs> so, so all of a sudden, they they are brought together in a highly dependent way, and then you give them uh, assignments which are becoming more and more difficult, and then you start measuring the moment when the team collapses. Yeah. And and so he did research on the way people coordinate and uh, the jobs uh, they are assi got assigned and so forth. And that was the moment when I started to use a more difficult version in, in my course. And, and that was fun. So people, I've, I've loads of photographs where you see this, the, 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 how people, they, you know, how happy they are and how scared they get and how emotional they are. And all of a sudden, they start to understand that what you're teaching about, for example, how your brain works, how you make a decision. Uh, what does it mean to have a good teamwork that that kind of research and literature that i've been reading that it makes sense that you can observe it yeah. so 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 that's a little bit my story and in the meantime i kept practicing with my flight simulator at home and 
And, and then I started using it for executive education and consultancy purposes in my leadership courses because what you what you get is so nowadays they send everyone to a leadership course and and you can talk for days about leadership but it doesn't have any meaning unless you experience what it is and and that's uh what brought us to using that that kind of equipment and then mr azar we started doing things like how to observe how people behave and um we started to analyze here. For example, one of the lessons we learned was that when people crash, they get very emotional. Thank God they are still living, you know, because it's a simulator. But 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 I realized that the moment you start analyzing with them what happened, that for some people it's just way too much. So <clears throat> we had the experience once about 10 years ago that uh, a team crashes and the analysis starts and uh, one of my students got so angry that she didn't show up anymore for a minimums for a week be be because not only her the plane crashed but also her ego crashed and then we were telling her and analyzing the things which she did wrong that felt like a personal critique on her and so uh, we also started working on how can we do this and then it gets close to what Therese was saying well, when we give that training in this uh, firm it's the, it's the way you package the feedback which makes it digestible yes or no and where you learn that you know you need to stay factual never even if you want to you know this was good that's already wrong we say yeah you, you're, you're meeting the objective or not that's got, so it gets very very sensitive, and so that's that's um, how I got to it. Mm. What goes through your mind, Emma, when you when you hear this? Because yeah. so, <laughs> so much, <laughs> I'm really curious. Um, um, yeah, uh, well, one thing that definitely happens is the like relating what you explained to my own experience because. I'm working also for a consulting company in uh, Belgium and there are courses of leadership and change um, management um, and we definitely do not have such um, practical um, uh, more as you say like kind of embodiment um, part to it or at least I didn't attend the leadership course it was more of the change management and there were a lot of role playing so there are some some part of mm -hmm. um, embodiment, but I think this analogy and metaphor is very quite interesting because indeed I believe that messages come across very clearly when they seem to be very factual or very not emotionally based, and then there is so much to relate to it actually. Mm -hmm. So I just find that yeah quite fascinating, and then I thought um, I really. Yeah, I'm really curious um, maybe to um, hear more um, about the extent to which both in education and in organization you can um, and you um, develop with the students or the employees or managers about these um, sort of ego-breaking uh, um, moments or very emotional, interpersonal uh, interpersonal. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, feelings because I have the impression that 
sometimes or historically, traditionally, it's something that has been somehow avoided and that is not always looked at. And so I'm really curious to see how big of a part it is in your job and how much do you actually mm -hmm. use these insights and talk about the students or the employees mm -hmm. or managers about these kinds of insights. So from a research perspective, I'm really interested in overconfidence. And this is, of course, where the ego comes in. So for all of the measurements we do, if we measure performance or processes of any kind, I always ask, so how did you feel about that? How confident were you? Um, purely for the purpose of being able to, to compare performance and confidence as a way of pointing out that sometimes what you think you're doing or what you're capable of is not actually true. So you need to seek feedback. You need to reflect continuously so that those two things get closer and closer and stay there. And doing that with data, not for one individual person saying, look, for this group, this is what we saw. And this is particularly a problem for this group that we studied, not so much for that group, right? Mostly men and women. And as soon as you mention gender, people start laughing because they know. Right? They know that for men it's not as acceptable maybe to say that they don't know or they, they have doubts. And for women it is. So women tend to have more of a chance to learn as well. And bringing that with data that is not about you personally, but it is about a group of people that you can identify with, you see that it's not something that affects you, but that affects people in a more structural way. So it's not a personal failing. It is really something that is the product of your environment and the expectations that are being placed on you. And that gives you a face-saving way to do something with that. As soon as you feel yeah. like, oh, I have personally failed, or this person is attacking me for who I am, it's very, very hard to change and to be open-minded. I mean, yeah. we all know what it feels like to get that kind of unprofessional feedback. Usually people shut down or they get scared um, or angry, depending on, on your default reaction. But doing that with data is a very... Yeah, face-saving way and an acceptable way, I think, of thinking about mm -hmm. egos. And that doesn't mean we don't see our fair share of emotions, right, especially in those simulations. But we found that that is a, a good way to keep that dialogue going and to to keep people mm -hmm. in the in that curiosity perspective. Maybe, Wim, you can tell a How bit about we... teaching. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so, so uh, in, in, in teaching... Um... I think the hard lesson I've learned over there is that you can't tell students what to do. So, so you can you can talk and talk and explain, but it doesn't necessarily imply they learn. That's the first line. Right. And uh, and uh, the second hard lesson was that by teach when I was started to teach more, uh, it was me who understood the subject matter in a better way. So I was slowly drifting away from my students. And, and then it's very hard to, when you see, and they engage in a discussion, to um, refrain from telling them the solution. So what you want to do is you want to help them by telling the solution. But it's a meaningless solution. And, and, and so and, and after a while, I, I noticed that only when they had gone through let's say, a lengthy discussion with a lot of questions, they were ready to get whatever I consider to be an answer or a solution or whatever research that was there. That was one part. 
of the story. And the second part of it is we underestimate the power of emotions. It's like, like at, at some moment I, I realized in my, my own research and, and, and my, my field of research is when you go to an educational research conference, you will barely see any session on emotions. It's all about rationality and the brain. And um, But when you think about, at least for someone like me, I can become very angry or happy. And, and uh, I'm very, very attached to what, what others are doing. So if they don't, you know, if they don't get to where I would love them to be, so that becomes for me a source of frustration. Then the question is, how should I act? Should I be angry or uh, should it be humor or whatever? Or should I be very neutral? So I also learned that that processing feedback uh, for students, but also for me, is essentially an emotional ac experience. Mm. And if you do that in a careful way, um, you can gain a lot. That's what I learned. And I've seen that many, many times. You know, in the, in the flight simulator, it's 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 so you can you can you can see the the red faces. You see how they can how their hands are shaking, what our body language is doing. And they forget everything. They're they are there, and uh, that's where I uh, many times I saw that after they went through a simulation, first we you need to drink a coffee with them and talk about anything except for the experience and then slowly you make them talk about the experience so that's the emotional part of it and so for me it's very important that you uh, try to understand how the other is emotionally experiencing is doesn't say that i uh, always do it correctly you know that's uh, that's the thing because sometimes you know you go with it again but but for me that that's a very important lesson and that also implies when you work as companies or with professionals that you should take this in account right. and that they have their own um, they have their own sense of pride who they are and and then it gets to Teresa's point so if people are very confident or essentially become overconfident I think this is where I am but essentially the performance is not in par with the where they feel they are, then forget about it that you can tell them. Just say, oh. hey, you know. Uh, so you need to find a way to connect to those people and make them aware of hmm, maybe maybe those things that should change. Mm. I'm I have so much coming in my mind because this is definitely a topic I'm really interested in personally. Um, I wrote part of my my bachelor thesis also on these kinds of topics, and I have a follow up question on this topic. You mentioned, um, I think that um, usually in educational um, seminars or even in your own work, you have the impression that um, there are not so many workshops about this topic of the relationship of emotions and learning, and um, and I'm wondering. Um, to what extent um, do you feel that being a fact in general of educational sciences, of learning sciences, um, do you have the impression that not only seminars, but also research, also courses in general, because, for example, you have your own course on learn models of learning, right? 
um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, for example, if um, sort of an um, learning and learning with dealing with emotions is incorporated in your course or not, or um, yeah, basically on a sorry, I'm going to try to make us one question <laughs> um, on a broader level and also in your personal work and experience so far. Do you feel that indeed there is um, sort of a lack of connection between learning and emotion? Yeah, so, so my answer is, for me, there's definitely a disconnect between mm. how we study cognition and the way we connect it to emotion. Mm -hmm. Of course, there, there's a specialized journal actually on cognition and emotion, which, which does this in a beautiful way. But most of the... When, when, when you look at the teaching, daily practice, it's all about rationality. Mm -hmm. And emotion is just, you know, it's like a fly. It's, you should send it away. It's difficult to, to mm -hmm. handle. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and in our teaching, I thought, mm, yeah, we, we do pay attention to it, but we use different words. For mm -hmm. example, we study with our students things like, when do, they, when do you get into a flow? Mm. When, when do you feel you're getting engaged? Now tell me, what is it that you get engaged in something? When do you feel passionate about what you're doing? And what would that imply if you work with others to make them passionate about what they are doing? And But, but many people talk about it as if... Um, so we make them watch videos on... on, on, on true experts who are really uh, engaged in something for sort of a video for example on Michelin star cook who talks yeah. about his work the first response you get many times is that person is very passionate and I would say mm -hmm. check yes correct and then they think but that person has always been passionate mm -hmm. he was born with it and that's where I said no can't be so, so there must be something in the in your work environment or your social environment which made you very much engaged and interested in in it, and that you uh, develop the curiosity to become better in something. And and that's for me, um, you know, if if you see that people start to realize, hey, uh, so there is hope for me, for example, uh, I can become passionate in something as well. That, that is already, for me, an, an important achievement. But most of the time people will say, in terms of, I guess, or, uh, emotions, uh, you, it's by nature. Hmm. And, I, 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 and, and I think that in our data we, we have acquired in all those years, it looks very much that it's much more, at, at minimums, it's an interaction on who you are and how you relate to your social environment. And at maximum, it's uh, most of it is driven by what the social environment does to you. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so that's my point of view. Mm. And 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 I, I just one more thing. So so I I am deeply convinced that emotions are contagious. I think there's there's uh, just from from a psychological point of view, there's good evidence for that. That yeah. if you put and there are, the experience looks something like this. You put two people in a room and then you have an actor go in and either they're modeling a very enthusiastic or they're modeling a very sad um, yeah, um, emotion, so to say. Mm -hmm. And you see over, over the course of, of seconds, maybe minutes, 
that the other people are really affected by it and it really uh, also affects then afterwards if you give the measures of how they feel or how the interaction was it really has a strong um, impact on that and yeah that's it's yeah if, if i may add one more thing then okay so so Therese was mentioning uh that we did a series of workshops for 1200 accountants so we we need to run that workshop 25 times always the same workshop and and that's of course a challenge you know every because every time it needs to be as if it's new <laughs> and uh and uh and i already love that you know for me that was quite an experience do, doing something 25 times and 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 every time with the same level of energy but but uh but when you sit you sit in the audience it's more hey there is a group of people and they are going to tell me about what I'm supposed to do or where it goes right or wrong. So who are you? So that's the challenge. And uh, uh, I remember from all those sessions that the first two or three minutes when the, the three of us were, were standing there for this highly you know, educated group who are very, very proud of what they are doing, that the first signal we gave to them, look, uh, we're going to do some work, but in the end, it's all fun because we're going to uh, to learn. And and the way uh, we we were standing there was already influencing the way people were looking at us and whether that that workshop would become uh, uh, highly successful, yes or no. Right. And I knew that if I would be very serious and would say, "Hey, guys." Now we're going to talk about the real serious stuff. Then, 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 you know, it's already gone. Right. So, so it's about how you create a kind of an emotional in connection with the mm -hmm. others, mm -hmm. which, which, and then the rationality comes later. The facts, the figures, and whatever you want to tell. Mm. And with teaching, so it's just the same. Huh? If you enter yeah. a group as a tutor in Maastricht, we have the small tutorial groups uh, up to 15 people, one tutor. Um, when you enter the room on the first time, it matters so much what mental state you're in as a tutor. And it's not that you determine everything about the group dynamics, but in my experience, it has such a big influence. If I come in and I'm looking forward to it and I'm curious to meet all of the different students and to learn about them and to see what they want to do and what they want to achieve and how we can make that happen, then I've noticed that I get that openness back much more, uh, I think, yeah. than if I would come in and say, okay, we have two hours, this is the agenda, here's the syllabus, do you have questions, this is your homework, bye. Right? You already set that example. And with workshops, it is a one-time thing, but with teaching, you do that for weeks on end to feel how, how are my students doing right now? Um, are they stressed or challenged? Are they excited or are they bored? And you always try to feel how everybody is doing and to intervene to make sure that you're in a zone that is productive, at least for most people, most of the time. And sometimes yeah. that means that you have to put a lot of extra energy in the group yourself. Sometimes you want to take someone apart and say, hey, you've been really quiet for a few sessions now. and if you want to talk, you know, this is what I can offer you and um, I'm happy to help. Um, so for me, managing emotions is one of the, the core things in teaching, which is very rewarding, but very hard to do. Mm. And I think um, 
that might also be a nice segue because you have one part uh, in this course where this managing emotion probably becomes the most important uh, and that's the the part where actually the students have their own learning project and also to um, could you maybe outline also so emma has a picture of of how mm. that works what the project is and how you integrate all the different things that uh, you both just talked about this you have to manage the emotion but you also have to give the people the ability to try it actually try it out and mm -hmm. really get them in the process of thinking about it and when when you were talking about it, i also heard almost a little bit of play about it uh, that play is an important setting the stage for for learning so to say yeah could you maybe describe how this learning project is built up and yeah what what your thought process was going into that so the learning project is something we came up with i think two years ago um and it happened around the same time as COVID started so we knew anyway we have to change the way that our course is being done and we have to have something that gives our students an experience even though they can't be in the classroom with us physically And um, I had read a book, I think, by Harari. It was 21 Lessons for the 21st mm -hmm. Century. And mm -hmm. he wrote a sentence that was very inspiring. He said, the best thing we can teach people is learning how to learn. And mm. I wholeheartedly agreed with that statement. I think that's the most valuable thing we can do. And given that our course is called Theories and Models of Learning, I mean, is there a better place? So it had to be an experience. It had to be something that is personally meaningful for the students. And it had to be a tool for learning in itself, that you become aware of how you learn. That was the goal. So how we set it up was that um, students choose a skill that they've always wanted to learn, but maybe didn't find the time. Um, now they would get dedicated time in the course to work on that skill. Um, and for example, Niklas, you were learning to play jazz guitar. Uh, we had someone else in the group. She learned uh, a programming language. Last year, we had people, we had a pizza baker, I think. Um, we've had multiple craft projects. Um, language learning was very popular. So any skill doesn't really matter that you are interested in. You will use learning that skill as a way to experiment with your own learning. So for seven weeks in the course, each Monday morning, we upload a learning challenge. And the first challenge, for example, is, well, why do you want to learn what you're, you're learning? What do you know about your learning so far? Why do you believe learning works this way? We come back to that challenge at the very end, after people have gone through five or six different experiments to see, well, do you still hold the same beliefs in learning? Has anything changed for you? And... Um, Yeah, we build up the challenges in a way that they follow the content that we're teaching in the course. So we start with mm. individual learning, and it's all about you have to repeat the skill enough times, and you have to, to bring it back to smaller chunks that you're practicing again and again. So we ask the students, can you do that with your skill? And with pizza baking, that's easily done. And with learning a language, that's easily done. But if you want to become a good photographer, that's much harder to do. You really have to think about how do I break down that skill so that I can actually practice those things step by step. What makes sense? Mm -hmm. um, then we advance more towards topics of reflection and of experiencing critical experiences, ma managing mistakes, those kind of things. So we go into reflection and we have an exercise where students try to build a visual representation of how their learning works. 
Um, then we go into the topic of feedback. They have to exchange that representation with another student and they have to challenge each other. And, okay, why does it look like this? And well, I don't really understand that. And you can ask your own questions about what you are still struggling with. And I think the last but one challenge, Nicholas, is where you have to come up with your own learning challenge. I was particularly proud of that one. Um, you have to figure out what you need to still learn to make better sense of your own learning. And every student can do something completely different depending on what they need. And that requires a high level of insight into where you currently are. And you, of course, can ask feedback and you can ask for support and ideas from others. But ultimately, it teaches you to consider what do I need if I apply for a job after my studies, right? What kind of boss would I need? What kind of feedback do I need? What kind of an environment do I need? Um, which activities help? Which ones definitely do not? That's just as important to know. And the idea is there to have ownership, to have a topic or a skill that you're really passionate about and to just experiment because you can't really fail. So we don't give you a grade in the sense that you have reflected at a level 7.4. But the more activities you do, the more points you can collect. So you can choose how much effort you mm -hmm. want to put into the project. And for us, it's really about being open to that experience. That's the key thing. Mm. Wow. That sounds really um I want to find a good word because um, my English is not so great. So I would say nice, but that sounds a lot different than nice. It's, it sounds like a really meaningful, um, interesting and yeah, like really generating a lot of um, yeah, learning, curiosity um, and positive emotions. I think project, I, I would definitely really like to be, yeah, have Uh, as an assignment to take on this project um, that sounds very what it, interesting what it did for me just to add like because i mm. i had the, the pleasure to go through it and to be honest um, throughout the project i sometimes had a very rough time but in the end uh, it did something for me in the sense that um, it really rekindled my passion for learning how to learn so therese already said i had this I had this goal of learning how to play jazz guitar, but the entire project turned into a, okay, how do I deal with learning basically? And that was such a yeah, valuable experience, even though not everything about it was nice, but the end product was really this gained motivation of, yeah, um, that's how I can approach learning in the future with anything. Now, for example, mm -hmm. I'm doing a similar thing. I try to apply these skills for uh, improving my squash technique for example <laughs> and that's that's i think really really where the where the where the value of this of this project is and where it's just yeah really amazing mm. um, yeah. and the frustration part you mentioned eh, that's something we hear quite a lot that there's a lot of frustration in the process so every year i have conversations with students who say i want to switch the skill that i'm doing I've done three weeks of skill A and I, I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I, I get overwhelmed and I want to switch to something easier. And then we always have the conversation, well, why do you want to switch? Is it important for you that the, the project looks good, right? That you, you, you can prove that you made progress or that, that you're successful? Or is this a really nice opportunity for you to experiment with what you do with that frustration? Right? You don't have to pass in a sense that, yes, you have to be able to make the perfect pizza or to make the perfect handstand. That's not the point. The point is that you confront yourself about what works and what doesn't work. And hmm. 
in all of those those conversations, you see the click at some point where it's like, oh, yes, it's not about the result. It's really about the way that I approach it and how I think about it and what I can take away from it. And I think mm. as a student, maybe it's one of the few moments where the outcome doesn't matter so much, but where it's really about your own process. And and we try to make this as non-punitive and as non-scary as, as, as possible to give that that room that you don't have a graded assignment. And then I don't rank Niklas's learning compared to all of the other students learning, right? And um, everybody mm -hmm. gets to show what they've learned and gets to share their insight and gets to, to have that support from their peers. Mm, that's very interesting. I, I have a question and I'm, I'm wondering if I will be able to phrase it um, clearly enough. It seems that, uh, no, well, let's start with premises. In my experience at Maastricht University, a lot of the projects um, happened with a very strong, probably intended lack of guidance, as in there were a lot of the philosophy of mm -hmm. the students will figure it out by themselves. Um, and I'm wondering, in general, maybe how you, you feel about this um, Again, I'm, I'm, I'm making it very um, big as if, as if that's really a philosophy that's probably way more refined, fine-tuned than this, right? But it felt as a student that we can write a paper about anything we want on the topic of the course, but anything you want, 3,000 words, that's it. And so you're like, okay, first year, you're like, okay, but... And you have a million questions, and then third year, you just got used to it, and you write your paper, right? But um, I'm wondering, in this project, it seems like, you know, with the peer feedback... Um, and also what you explain, there is more of this guidance and this um, process of yeah, tutoring or assisting or guiding. Um, yeah, I'm wondering how present it is mm. and how important um, you think it is in this process. It's something we think about very, very, very carefully and something mm. we, we adjust and, and play with every single year based on the experiences of the students we've, we've just been teaching. So um, we want our students to be challenged. And for us, it's desirable that sometimes they get frustrated. But mm. the frustration shouldn't be a point in itself. It's not the goal to make students frustrated. The goal is to have an experience that teaches you how to get through that. And for that, mm. you need to be very mindful of where you give autonomy or freedom and where you are very explicit. So one of the philosophies mm. that we have in our course is you shouldn't have questions on how you are being evaluated. It should be crystal mm. clear to you what we are looking for, but you have a lot of ways to get there. You can show mm. us that you have met those goals in different ways, but we do tell you very clearly what we are looking for so that there's no guesswork in, in that part because that causes stress mm. where students focus mm. on how should I format the paper? Do you want me to write two introduction sentences or one? That is not productive learning. That's being stressed out mm. about something that's beyond your control. But I do want you to be stressed about, oh, is this the best way of doing it? Maybe there's a better argument out there. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if I could do it just a bit better. That's the kind of frustration I want. And that's a difficult thing. <laughs> it's really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so if we come back to how women I met, um, the way that the course was designed at the time was we were writing a paper every week. And again, we could write about mm. anything, just like you're describing, Emma write about anything, you have mm. to end up with an original research question that hasn't been asked before. And as a reader, I need to be convinced that this is something to invest in for research. 
seven papers and no guidance. So we freaked out naturally, as you do as a student. And um, over time, we questioned Wim, said, well, Wim, but then what is a good introduction? How do you do that? And he says, well, mm. somebody needs to care, right? Then you need to tell me. Okay, well, let's do that. First paragraph, we need to make sure someone cares. Okay. Wim, you keep saying my writing is too German. What does that mean? Oh, yeah. Okay. Two lines maximum. And then the sentence has to end. That's good. Okay. So we tried to make explicit what for Wim was very implicitly true. And in that dialogue, I learned a lot. Uh, the way that I've learned to structure literature and arguments in Wim's course when I was his student is still 80% how I do that today. And having to figure that out the hard way took a lot of energy, but it was definitely, definitely worth it. And I'm not sure how intentional mm. Wim was about those things. I tend to be a lot more explicit uh, about those things. Um, but it's a very careful consideration. And it's something that I ask mm. for feedback as well. If I see a student struggling, I ask, okay, what would have helped you? What would have been you know, just the right amount? And then we address that for next year. Mm. So every year we have a list of changes we want to make so that we can get that balance right. It's really hard, but it's definitely worth it. Mm. Thank you. That's very interesting. That is, yeah. Yeah, it's just very interesting also to hear how the how the course evolved over time. And basically, it isn't this static thing how some courses are. Um, yeah, it's just it's just amazing. Um, maybe to to um, how to how to say it? Maybe to start the outro, so to say, because we slowly have to have to get going. Um, do you personally have any learning projects that you follow in your uh, yeah in your own life right now? Rim, do you want to start? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I, I'm I'm on a learning project now for sixteen or seventeen years on baking bread. Mm. And and so, uh, I at, at one day I thought, why am I paying four euros for a bread? <clears throat> and why, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. That's overconfidence, okay? <laughs> so um, I bought a book. I bought all the ingredients and started doing it, and the result was a disaster. <laughs> I was heavily disappointed because this was not the, the bread I had in mind. Uh, because I wanted to to bake a, a, a French pâte de campagne or no. a German bread, and uh, so that took me to a whole journey in figuring out how how do you bake a bread, and then I started talking to bakers, and I went to bakeries and uh, read more books, and at some moment you you know you you get stuck in your development. This is as far as it gets, and you don't make any improvement anymore, and yet it's not. You're not even halfway of the bread you have in mind, and and um, and then it becomes a little bit like deliberate practice. You you need to find a way to learn, and and so there are certain moments when I look back in my baking bread history where I thought those were decisive moments, and uh, now now I'm at the stage where I think I don't need to read the books anymore. I have the bread in my head. And then I start working backwards, you know, and, and therefore this is what I'm going to do. And just a couple of months ago, I I, had, I thought, wow, now I got it. Now it's perfect. 
<clears throat> and so I made photographs on it and they felt like, wow, it's, and now you have to eat it, of course. It's uh, it's pity for this perfect uh, bread. So that's that's kind of my personal uh, learning journey I undertook. And, and another one is uh, I'm still doing flight simulating. So getting uh, more and more, I have all the equipment at home, so the, the software. And and uh, and now you go through the the the, the more difficult things on how you plan the flight and how you program it and what kind of equipment you're you're flying. And I still feel like I'm learning, but I also notice that if I haven't been flying for let's say a week or two, I start making mistakes. And I'm constantly monitoring where where does this mistake coming from. And and I feel that's a that's quite a, re a rewarding enterprise. And the third is, that's my, 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 my thing is, I still want to do better when I give presentations. Every time when I, when I give presentations, I think, hmm, and next time I can do better. So I'm still practicing on my PowerPoints, on the books, so I keep reading and reading. Uh, I can spend days or months ahead of what kind of joke I'm going to make and how I do the course <laughs> opening or something like that. <clears throat> so that, that, that's, that's the, so I read interviews with, with people who are uh, on stage and that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's kind of my personal uh, learning experience where I feel like in, in a sense, it's like the learning project we uh, developed for the TML course. Yeah. And you know, and that—that's the fun. The moment you feel like like you went through a difficult period, uh, and and you can do what you had in mind, and it's fun again. And that's so, and and therefore, and, and that's my final point. Uh, in all honesty, sometimes it's very hard for me to understand why some people gave up on something. Yeah. Or or why they don't enjoy this having this pleasure of you make progress on on something and I know it's not easy you know it's it's not easy for if you stand for a large audience and you think why why did I ever accept this invitation but you need to go through it um, yeah that's kind of a personal uh, a hurdle you you you're, you're taking you need to go through it and, and then you will enjoy it yeah. yeah it's a difficult a difficult uh question with why people give up i think we're gonna we're gonna save that one when we have you on for the second time <laughs> <laughs> therese what what about what about you what are you currently learning well i can think of two main things one is at work um, academic writing is a big part of of what we do and a lot of the communication between researchers is taking place in writing and i enjoy writing a lot but it's also very challenging uh, for me. One of the challenges is that we are trying to publish in different domains because we study learning across different domains and we want that knowledge and that insight to be shared with people who come from those settings where we, we look at learning. And papers in educational sciences are written very differently from papers in management or in accounting um, journals. So there's always something else to to take into account and always another convention that you didn't know about 
And the problem we've come across is that if people can smell that you're not part of their family, they are very quick to, to reject your work because it feels like it's not you're not one of us. And they think like, well, but it, it, it doesn't quite connect. And making that connection, that is, uh, has been a learning project for the last 10 years. And one of the critical moments there was we, we have one paper that, that is not my favorite anymore. Um, it has been with us for several years. Uh, it has been rejected a lot. But it is a nice paper, and we, we do feel that it's relevant. It's just how do we communicate what we found in a way that makes the right people listen up with, with an open mind. And we brought uh, another person on the team. Uh, a professor from uh, from Australia who is uh, an expert in, in in audit research, and I have learned so much from his comments, just because it's a different perspective and it's someone who has a different vision on how learning works and someone who is very short but very explicit about what that community is like, what the culture is like of that group, and his feedback is so invaluable. Sometimes it's just half a sentence that he says and something clicks in my brain. It's like, that's what I've been struggling with. Now I get it. And um, we hope, well, we, we submit later this week. So keep your fingers crossed that hopefully that has paid off. Um, but academic writing and tailoring your message to the, the, the audience that you want to reach. For me, that's one project that is involved in a lot of practicing, a lot of trial and error, a lot of feedback seeking. Mm-hmm. And uh, privately, I started learning Hungarian two years ago. And um, I thought I was good with learning languages. Um, but the languages that I've learned so far are all very connected. So if you are mm. a German speaker, then English is not that far away. If you know German and English, then Dutch is not that difficult. Once you've learned French, then you know Spanish, at least reading, makes a lot of sense. And then there's Hungarian. And Hungarian works completely differently. And the... It's a very implicit language, so you can use the same word in 15 different ways, and it depends on how you pronounce it, where you put it in the sentence, um, the emphasis you put on it in the sentence. And then it could mean above, on top of, in first place, favorite, all of those things. And I don't know, so I tend to say very random things without knowing. And uh, the grammar is very difficult. But every time we visit Hungary, I notice that I understand more and I'm able to react to people more easily. So in the beginning, I could say, hello, thank you. This is very tasty. Um, Goodbye, like those very basic things. And now I understand a little bit about what they're talking about. And if there's something on the news, the elections, for example, when the political speeches are given, I have more of a sense of how things are being said. And yeah, it's 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 rewarding in that sense that suddenly the door is opening to another culture, and it will take me years mm. to get there. Definitely yes, but I'm I'm very much enjoying it. It's really hard, very frustrating, but it's okay. <laughs> mm. It's very great. inspiring. <laughs> both are both are. Emma, do you have any any questions? For women, Teresa. Um, no, I actually really love these um, stories and um, hearing about learning processes um, right now. So <laughs> I feel that a lot is actually in there um, of what you just explained. A lot of 
um, interesting yeah, content and um, insights are in the whole episode, obviously. And also just in what you just explained just now, um, yeah, tells us a lot about um, these learning processes. So I do not have any questions, additional questions. Nice. Then maybe as a, as a really last question to both of you to wrap it together, what would you personally, um, as, a, as a tip or insight or suggestion, would give to other educators that are struggling with getting their, their students to be excited about learning? Um, what would be the one thing that you would, um, yeah, give, give other educators on the way? Maybe Therese first <laughs> and, and then Wim. If you are not excited about what you're teaching yourself, you're not going to make your students excited. So you need to find out what is it that binds you to that topic? Why do you spend your time on it? What makes you link what you, you teach to your own life? And you need to have that passion yourself. Otherwise, it, it won't happen. Mm. That's my, I don't have scientific evidence for it, but that's my strong feeling. Nice. How about you, Wim? I had a similar kind. Uh, I thought, uh, however dull the content is, uh, start searching for non-dull examples and show how interesting all those, even the dullest contents can become when you find the right examples. And so for me, it's all about to reconnect contents to the stories where it originates uh, from. And then even mathematics is fascinating. <laughs> it's great. I think that's a nice, a nice uh, end to wrap it up. And yes. yeah, thank you very much for, for taking the time and for joining us and yeah, sharing your insights of your different, different sources of experience that you have gathered over the years. And yeah, it really was a pleasure to, to have you on. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. Okay. For us too. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us. <laughs> right. Then, yeah. Much success, both of you, with your learning projects and, of course, also with the, the paper. paper. So, fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> It's going to Bye. be eight years soon. <laughs> Good luck. Okay. Thank you. Eight times the charm, very nice I guess. talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.